Turn, if you would, to Acts 14. Last week we talked about the whole of Acts 14. And if you're here for Sunday school, you saw Michael's timeline and part of it was zoomed out and there was more detail about this part. That's kind of what this sermon is, is there's more detail about this part of Acts 14. Specifically, we'll look at verses 14 through 17 today and we'll read uh, 8 through 18 for context. And uh, let's pray as we go to God's Word. I'm going to be praying Psalm 104 this morning. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both great and small. There go the ships and the Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles? Who touches the mountains and they smoke? I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth. Let the wicked be no more. Blessed be the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of the word Acts 8, or Acts 14, 8 through 18. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying, In Lycaonian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you grains, uh, rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Again, we'll be zeroing in on specifically verses 14 through 17 today. Um, I read a New York Times opinion piece by uh, Ross Douthat a Roman Catholic, actually. Uh, it, it was entitled, Return, The Return of Paganism. 
writing about a cultural shift in apparently Christian culture in the United States, he said, So perhaps instead of secularization, it makes sense to talk about the fragmentation and personalization of Christianity, to describe America as a nation of heretics, if you will in which traditional churches have been supplanted by self-help gurus and uh, spiritual political entrepreneurs. The result is a nation where the Protestant awakenings have given away to post-Protestant wokeness, where the prosperity gospel and Christian nationalism rule the right and social gospel denuded of theological content rules the left. He goes on to wonder whether the term uh, Pagan or paganism might be reasonably revived to describe the new American religion currently struggling to be born. He continues pointing out to get a fully revived paganism in contemporary America, the philosophers of pantheism and civil religion would need to build a religious bridge to the New Agers and neo pagans, and together they would need to create a more fully realized cult of the eminent divine an actual way to worship, not just appreciate the pantheistic order they discern. He says, it seems like we're some distance from a fully revived paganism in contemporary American, from uh, from pagans actually donning druidic robes or Jeff Bezos playing Pontifex Maximus for a post-Christian civic cult. <laughs> in other words, we're not yet living in a full-blown pagan society. But there is a growing fascination with paganism, uh, pantheism, polytheism. Uh, Douthat commented that in a Gallup poll, even though institutional Christianity has been in decline since the, since the 1960s, uh, the number of people who claimed a profound religious experience or awakening had redirected their lives doubled between the 1960s and the early 2000s despite the decline of cultural Christianity. So, spiritual but not religious is a common refrain in our day. Um, the advance of atheism and naturalism, I think, have dominated the fears of evangelicals for the past number of years, but honestly, those beliefs uh, can't really stand. They don't hold water. Um, they're, they're not true to, to, to human experience. The sensus divinitatis, the sense of the divine within us, is just too strong. Human beings are spiritual creatures. Because we have been created in the image of God, we live in His creation. So we've been pre-programmed to grope for God. So the negative pressure created by atheism and by naturalism um, is equalized by an inrushing of spirituality. But it's a pagan or, or polytheistic spirituality. So whether it's neo-paganism, New Age pantheism, or any other ism, it's certain we will be encountering more and more people who do not culturally identify with Christianity. Which leaves us with the question, what do we do about it? How do we love these people? How do we wage war against the principalities who have such people in their grasp? 
How do we stand against the devil's schemes and assault the gates of hell, as we learned about last week? One of the great blessings in Acts is we get to observe the apostles in action. Paul says in Philippians 3.17, Join one another in following my example, brothers, and carefully observe those who walk according to the pattern we set for you. So I've drawn out five lessons from Paul and Barnabas as examples for us in dealing with paganism or anti-Christianity that will help us uh, seek to assail the forces of evil in a place where the gospel is increasingly marginalized, at least culturally speaking. So the first lesson is that we can consistently apply the creator-creation distinction. We need to consistently apply the creator-creation distinction. I was listening to an interview this week, and the interviewer made a comment um, that represented, I think, the climate we live in. He said, I was raised in the church, but I rebelled. Then I realized God is inside of you. So you choose to pray who you want to pray to, you believe what you want, feel how you want to feel. whether it's this sort of pantheistic mindset or something more akin to the formal paganism of Greek and Roman cults, the issue is always the same. Even for atheists, the issue is the same, a failure to apply the creator-creation distinction. I took Cohen to Cub Scouts this last week. The Scout Oath begins, On my honor, I will do my best to do my duty to God and to country. And the topic of this particular meeting was duty to God. The discussion devolved into a a vague reference to church and a focus on service projects, after which they picked up trash in the park. As we drove away, I wanted to uh, fill in some gaps. I asked Cohen, why do we have a duty to God? After some thought, Cohen said, because he made us. That's where it all begins, isn't it? We owe our obedience, our duty, our reverence, our worship, our service to God because He made us. Which is why Paul and Barnabas say, you should turn away from this vanity and come instead to the living God. To the God who made you. To the God, he says, who made heaven and earth and sea and all that is contained in them. In other words, everything. One God made everything. We should turn to him. Paul says in Romans 1, he says that the root of idolatry is to flip the creator, uh, creature-creator distinction, to confuse it. He says he has shown us the light of nature, in the light of nature, his eternal power and divine nature, but we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Claiming to be wise, we become fools, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and animals and creeping things. And Paul says, natural man exchanges the truth about God for a lie and worships and serves the creature rather than the creator. Paul identifies the same problem here as the men of Lystra cry out, the gods have come down to us in human form and they, and they, they trot out bulls for sacrifice to, 
to Paul and to Barnabas, their response is, you are confused, you're mixed up, you're, you're exchanging the truth for a lie. We also are, are men of like nature with you. Our, our nature is not God. You need to worship God. So the first lesson we draw from Paul and Barnabas is to remember that the natural human heart is, is mixed up. We exchange the creator for the creation. And most often that creation is us, chiefly. We worship ourselves. God is not in us. He's outside of us. He's above us. He made us. So we owe him our duty, our reverence, and our honor. Which leads us to the second lesson. If we do serve one true living God, uh, we have the grounds to exhort with confidence, knowing that we do preach good news. So the second lesson is know that you offer good news. Know you offer good news. I think my own timidity in evangelism comes from um, fear, <laughs> pride, um, I don't want to come across as the unreasonable or stuck in my own ways or uncharitable or, or rigid. But if there is truly one God who made us and everything, one God to whom we owe all our duty and reverence, we have not only the obligation but the foundation to exhort with boldness. Paul and Barnabas here are exhorters. It's not a suggestion. It says in verse 15, you should turn. You should turn from vain things to a living God. Notice, not only do they exhort, but they believe in their exhortation. They exhort for the sake of the well-being of their audience. It says, we bring you good news that you should turn. That seems a little odd at first, right? They're trying to get them to change their religion. and We have good news. You should change. But they believe in it so much. This is good news. This is the opportunity of a lifetime. If you find a man living on the streets in a cardboard box and offer him a mansion, a lifetime of food, servants, and all he could ever want, that's a, a good thing. That's an upgrade. If you have that to offer, why not urge him with good news? Turn away from this life of poverty to a life of riches. As his response may be, how dare you? <laughs> you see this box? This, this is a refrigerator box. A whirlpool. <laughs> but he should turn. He should turn. We have good news. Turn from this vain thing to a living God. So believe that you have good news. That's the second lesson that we learn. At this point, uh, I think sometimes we take this for granted. We live in a period of redemptive history when access to the gospel is, is the highest it's ever been. Um, and the third lesson, it seems obvious, but invest in the Great Commission. Invest in the Great Commission. In times past, redemption was more restricted. God chose the nation of Israel. He brought them up out of Egypt into the promised land. And, and yes, Gentiles could come in, become proselytes, proselytes but, but they could join themselves to Israel. But Israel failed to do what they were called to do in blessing 
the nations. They did not call the nations into fellowship with the living God. But now, in the New Covenant, God's redemptive plan is expansive. This shift in the covenantal paradigm in the New Covenant is an overflowing fountain of grace, which, as Gentiles, uh, we should be thankful for. Paul and Barnabas say in 16, In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Uh, The implication being now he calls the nations to come and walk in his ways. He opens the door for you to enter into fellowship with him. I'm going to turn your attention to a a parallel passage that's a little bit wider in breadth, but teaches us the same thing. Acts 17, if you want to flip over there, we'll read a little bit of that. Acts 17, uh, 26 through 31. Here Paul is preaching to to Greek philosophers in in Athens um, at the Areopagus, Mars Hill. He's preaching to them and he says that God made from one man, from verse 26, from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet, He is actually not far from each one of us. They are quoting from Greek poets, and He says, In Him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The times of ignorance God has overlooked. In past generations he allowed nations to walk in their own ways. Now he opens the door to the nations through the gospel to come into fellowship with Him. You sometimes hear unbelievers decry uh, Christian missionary zeal um, a- as insensitive or arrogant. Why should anyone go to the jungles of South America uh, to seek to change the religion and culture of these tribes? Why go and stir up division? Why try to Christianize people? I mean, that's bigoted and culturally insensitive, isn't it? Now, we should willingly admit the failures of the missions movement, um, of imperial oppression and forced cultural and religious assimilation. Um, As well, we should admit the failures of, of the missionary efforts, which rather than raising up indigenous leaders, to lead the churches instead of imposed Western culture as somehow synonymous with the gospel, we should be willing to admit those problems. However, what we see here is that the gospel is not culturally confined. You know, it's not limited to a a Midwestern propriety. 
It's not limited to Jewish traditions. It's not limited to countries influenced by Western Christianity. The Great Commission is an international cross-cultural commission, which means whatever our culture looks like, whether Christianized or paganized, the gospel is no more or less constrained. It is the power of God for salvation in every culture. God's word will not return void. To the degree that we invest ourselves into the Great Commission, we will glean a maximum yield on our investment. So that's the third lesson, is invest in the Great Commission. Now, because the gospel is not culturally constrained, uh, we are able to glean our fourth lesson, which is talk to who you're talking to. Talk to who you're talking to. Um, in seminary preaching class, you're warned, preach, preach to the people in front of you, not to your seminary professors. Especially when you go to your, to your church. The temptation can be very real, especially for young preachers to try to impress. To preach as though there were this, this great cloud of witnesses with all our heroes in the back of the room listening in, um, as though they would be impressed or... <laughs> They wouldn't. Um, then, on the converse, I think in personal evangelism, the, the, the workman's witness, if you will, we think, I don't have enough knowledge to talk about the gospel with this person. What if they bring up something I don't know? Which, on the one hand, can be a, a helpful motivation to study, to know what you believe, why you believe it, and how to share it, to borrow a, a ligonierism. And on the other hand, being an average Joe, without the training and the titles and the positions, uh, has its advantages because you're able to speak into your own world in a unique way, better than I or any pastor could, because because you speak the same language, you know the particular trials and nuances of a particular culture in which you inhabit. In other words. Indigenous missionaries are a powerful force, not just on the foreign mission field, but on the home front. That royal priesthood equipped for the work of ministry by the scriptures, by pastors and teachers, are the most powerful force there is against the gates of hell. The reason indigenous missions is so powerful is an indigenous person knows his context best. He's able to talk to those whom he's talking to. Paul himself was wise and skillful in tailoring his approach to his context. It's helpful to notice the difference here between Acts 13, 14, and 17. We've gone through Acts 13. We remember his sermon uh, is to the Jews. And what does he do when he preaches to the Jews? He quotes scripture after scripture and, and urges them, this is your Messiah, the one prophesied. Remember your scriptures. And then we just read from Acts 17. What does he do? He's among Greeks, highly educated, sophisticated Greeks. He turns instead of scripture to the light of nature, to general revelation, and even to their own literature, because he knows they'll know it. And also here in Acts 14, in 16 and 17, in past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. 
Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So here he's speaking again with Gentile pagans, and he uses the light of nature once again, general revelation. And he doesn't quote from poets, perhaps because this is a less educated group of people. In other words, Paul always does a careful job of audience analysis. He considers culture and education, and he applies the gospel in a most effective way. And we have to be careful here. You can make too much of this. Many have made way too much of this. But it's important to recognize when we proclaim the gospel, we are communicating. Communicating is a two-way street. The listener has an obligation to understand the speaker, but the speaker has an obligation to be clear. Paul gives us this principle in 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not by being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So there are two, two sides of the ridge we can fall off of here. On the one hand, we can become so obsessed with cultural awareness that we fall into cultural accommodation. Notice for, for Paul, the gospel is one size fits all. He doesn't give a flying rip who the gospel offends. To the point of getting himself stoned by these people he's preaching to in this passage. But the gospel itself is the offense, not our behavior. As I mentioned last week, we're after a spirit of boldness, not provocation. We see this principle play itself out in the issue of the circumcision or non-circumcision of Timothy and Titus, respectively. Paul circumcised Timothy when it made sense, so as not to unnecessarily offend the cultural sensitivity of the Jews in a particular context. Yet in another context, when it became a gospel issue, he steadfastly and obstinately refused to circumcise Titus. So if we ever, ever, ever compromise on the message of the gospel, if we ever dull its sharp edge for the sake of cultural accommodation, we have blood on our hands for failing to preach the whole counsel of God. The other side of the ridge we can fall from is to be so rigid, so set in our ways that we refuse to be flexible with our methodologies. The message is set in eternal stone. The method may, and I would even say should, be flexible. Kevin DeYoung, in a recent article, 
entitled Seven Principles for Cultivating a Christian Posture Toward the World, which I highly recommend if you get a chance to read it. I'll send you the link if you want. He says, although the application of 1 Corinthians 19... Uh, 9, 19 through 23, which we just read, can be debated. The big idea is clear. We should be eager to remove barriers to the gospel. Coming to Christ takes a miracle of the Holy Spirit to regenerate the fallen human heart. We should not make the Holy Spirit provide a second miracle to overcome our stupidity. (laughs) He concludes the article with a really helpful line. Paul is a model for us as we face an increasingly hostile world. Courtesy, whenever possible, clarity at all costs. So the goal of methodological flexibility or audience analysis is never comfort, it's always clarity. As Paul says in Colossians, pray that I make the gospel clear, which is how I ought to speak. It's an imperative. I think it's a sin to be unclear. Pray for me that I make the gospel clear, which is how I ought to speak. So audience analysis is not about making the gospel palatable. It's about it being penetrating. One helpful example, uh, Calvin removed instrumentation from corporate worship in uh, Geneva. Um, not because he thought it was wrong per se, but because he saw that the people who were coming out of Roman Catholicism, which didn't have the gospel and which had so much pomp and circumstance and glory, were addicted to those things. And he said, for a time, we're going to abstain. I think that's a good example. This serves the gospel. It's wise and strategic cultural engagement. spending some time on this because I think it's something we can think through together. I think um, there's one more element to this whole issue of cultural wisdom that is worth our consideration, and that is the place and purpose of Lord's Day worship. The principle of audience analysis applies to Lord's Day worship, um, certainly. But two things bear pointing out. First, who is our audience on the Lord's Day? The Lord. If we're doing audience analysis, we should say, what pleases the Lord? Lord's Day worship is uh, worship. Secondarily, we are talking to, on the Lord's Day, sheep and not goats. The Lord's Day worship is not primarily evangelistic, though if done well, it will be filled with the gospel and certainly has great evangelistic power. Second thing we should remember about the Lord's Day is I've been more and more convinced going through Acts that intentional evangelism, um, discipleship, and community are indispensable elements of church life and are therefore an issue of church faithfulness. We can be faithful to doctrine and worship on the Lord's Day, but if we're not faithful in those things, we're lacking some degree of faithfulness. What that means is that church life is holistic, extending beyond Sundays into the week. I think the areas of intentional discipleship, 
Intentional evangelism and life together are areas where we as a church are not as strong as we may be on the areas of the Lord's Day worship. And we face great challenges and difficulties in those areas, but we need to work together to overcome those. And I need to do a better job of, of leading and strategizing in those areas. In other words, to bring it all back around to the main point here, the Lord's Day audience is the Lord's first the Lord first, the sheep second. But the church is also called by divine imperative to address goats. So we follow the example of Paul and Barnabas in all of the above using wise audience analysis so that we are speaking clearly to those whom we are speaking, which is how we ought to speak. Now, finally, the fifth and final lesson um, in this cultural consideration, Paul and Barnabas open up both books of Revelation as they preach. There's great apologetic and, and evangelistic power in general revelation. That is nature, the light of nature. So the fifth lesson is preach both books. Again, the text, just as a reminder, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So first we notice Paul is willing to engage in philosophy with these people. He says he did good by giving you rains from heaven. They might object. What about all the bad? What about suffering? We say, hold on, wait a minute. Where does goodness come from? What is goodness? Where do food and drink come from? Where does breath for laughter around the table with friends come from? It has to come from somewhere. That the creator and, and beneficent sustainer of the world is worthy of our worship and reverence. Second here, notice though Paul doesn't quote scripture directly, his presentation oozes with scripture. Could pick a thousand of them to, to represent this, but for example, Psalm 24: The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Or um, Psalm 19, of course, is an obvious choice. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So you see, he, he's preaching the word of God, but he's not necessarily quoting scripture in this instance. Third, notice he does not explicitly preach Christ. However, uh, we don't have the whole record of what he said. I think he probably did preach Christ, certainly. Um, also, we should keep in mind, in one sense, all of Revelation, general revelation, special revelation, um, the Word made flesh is all a revelation of Christ. As Herman Bavink said, By the Word which was with God in the beginning and which was God, 
All things were made, and the life and the light of men was in that word. Their being and their consciousness, their existence and their understanding were owing to that word. Speaking of Christ. Not only in point of origin and principle, but in this sense also, that as time went on, they were continuously sustained by the word of God. For the word of God is not only the maker of all things, it remained in the world as the sustainer and ruler of everything. As such, it gave men their life, and by way of consciousness, reason, and understanding, enlightened every man that came into the world. So, sometimes when you're starting from zero with a person, perhaps the first question from the children's catechism is a great place to start. Who made you? Answer, God made me. It can be that simple. General revelation, God's self-revelation in nature is a powerful tool. Uh, we shouldn't feel like, I think, we have to give like this full gospel presentation every time we encounter an unbeliever, right? We can, and we could, we could, from some, sometimes that's valuable, but it doesn't apply in every instance. Perhaps a line here or there about our duty to our Creator will be used by the power of the Spirit to prick the conscience and cause them to seek relief for their guilt before the living God. And we'll be able to tell them, about the Word who created the world and the Word who sustains the world and the Word who became flesh to save sinners like us. And perhaps not. Perhaps they might stone us instead. How do we approach a culture that is increasingly hostile to the Gospel? We are given these lessons as we carefully observe and walk in the pattern set for us in the example of Paul and Barnabas. Consider, uh, consistently apply the creator-creation distinction. Know that you offer good news. Invest in the Great Commission. Talk to who you're talking to and preach both books. May Christ who is with us to the end of the age help us. Amen.